Good morning. My name's Andrew Conrad. If you haven't yet met me, I would love to meet you. We're glad that you are here with us, whether in person right here, or if you're watching on the live stream, we're glad you're here too, and invite you to come in person, because it's a different experience in person than it is on the live stream. Well, whether you uh, go to church frequently, or maybe you just, you know, come a few times a year, you've probably heard um, the phrase, don't be a doubting Thomas. It's used even in, in our secular media and secular world to refer to such people who would doubt, and it comes from this, uh, this account that we're about to read about Thomas, who is one of Jesus' followers, but can't believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. But, but who is Thomas? We don't see him mentioned very much. So a couple things you should know about Thomas. In chapter 11, when his friend Lazarus died, and Jesus was going to there to meet him and raises Lazarus from the dead, um, they know they're going into a place where people already don't like Jesus. The end is getting near for Jesus. And, and Jesus has said he's going to die. And Jesus says, I got to go here. And Lazarus said, okay, let's go with him. We'll die too. He, that's, him, that's him. He's all in. He's like, all right, I'm with you. Let's go. And then in chapter 14 of John, we're told that as Jesus is talking about this next place he's going, I'm going away, I'm going to leave you, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he says, but you know where it is, so make sure you come find me. And Thomas says, what, do we have Google Maps? How, how do we know where we're going? We don't know where it is. And Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What Thomas is saying, he said, look, I will die for you, and I will follow you wherever you go. I'm in. How did he become known as Doubting Thomas? And is that even fair that he's known as Doubting Thomas? Well, things changed. The way became less clear. The truth and the life died. Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. Thomas is not doubting. It's far worse. Thomas is actually disbelieving. The NIV accurately in what we're about to read uses doubt in one place, but it's wrong to do so. That's not the word. He doesn't have uncertainty. He doesn't have a lack of conviction. He is fully convinced and says, I refuse to believe because dead people don't come back to life. The word is disbelieving or faithless. So Thomas's sin is likely worse than you think. But that also means from there to the restoration of faith gives great hope. And I want us to see both of those as we read today. So follow along with me, if you will. I'm going to read from John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, which means twin, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting, that's stop disbelieving, and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Father, I pray that you will bless the reading of your word and spirit. I pray that you will use it in our lives. Use it to convict us, to touch our hearts, to grant us faith that we may walk in your ways. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The team has discovered that the sign above the coach's door that says believe has been ripped in half. And the culprit of tearing Coach Lasso's sign in half is Nate the Great. Unless you are unfamiliar with this, it's okay because what you need to know is this, that Nate has left to coach another Premier League team and no longer believes in his mentor and friend. And so he is upset and rips the sign in half. I no longer believe. And my point in telling you this is to say that disbelief is not merely an idea. Disbelief always impacts relationships. You see, because each sin begins with disbelief. It begins in our heart with disbelief. When you pursue lust or greed or rage, you believe at that moment that pursuing that will be better for you than believing the way of Jesus is better for you. You see, the seed of every sin begins with disbelief. It's not merely um, that. It goes on beyond that. What we saw last week when we looked at Peter was that he had critical failures in denying Jesus. And today we see Thomas's failures as well. And they're not their failures alone. Right? If we really want to learn something from this, if we really want to try to understand this text, we need to be willing to ask the question of ourselves, are these our failures too? Are they our failures too? Because unless we've asked that question and thought that we might be there, we can have no relief of our conscience unless God has relieved our conscience. But if we see these and then see restored faith and see hope, well then today's a glorious day. So let's ask this question. What kind of things could lead us to being faithless people? And then what inspires us? The first thing I want you to see today is that, and there's a sentence for this, a slide for this, you could be faithless because you refuse available evidence. This is the first thing. You could be faithless because you refuse available evidence. We see this in that Thomas says, I don't believe eyewitnesses. In verse 25, the first part, will you put verse 25, that next slide up there? Notice what he says. It says, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. So, is Thomas disbelieving because he has no evidence? No. He's disbelieving the evidence that is available to him. His friends, whom he has trusted and walked with, said, we've seen him, and he's like, nah, I don't believe you. He refuses to believe them. He refuses the eyewitness testimony. Now, let's be fair. You and I might think the same thing. And let's be fair, Peter and John and the rest of them also did the exact same thing. 
right? We read this morning the call to worship from Matthew that it's the women who go to the tomb early in the morning and realize that it's empty and Jesus appears to them. They come running back to the disciples. The tomb's empty. Jesus is risen. And they're like, nah, I don't think so. And Peter and John go running to the tomb to see for themselves and see that it's empty. And so this is the nature of all of us that we are prone to disbelieve. Thomas says, I must see with my own eyes. He won't take the uh, available evidence of his eyewitness friends. He's saying, I must see with my own eyes. And put the next slide up for verse 25. This is the second half of that verse. And notice what Thomas has said, right? He says, I will not believe. In other words, he's not saying I've got a few questions. I'm not a little bit uncertain. He's like, nope, dead people don't rise. I'm not believing unless you show me the dead guy living. Then I'll believe. That's his conditions. And I want to say, good for Thomas. I want to applaud him on that in a way, right? Like, while there's disbelief, and yes, that's a failure of his, what he is saying is that blind faith is, is not what Jesus calls us to. That there should be evidence. And he wants to see the evidence. And so Jesus shows up for Thomas. He appears to him. His hope is restored. Jesus really is alive. He's not a ghost. He's there in his real body. Thomas is able to touch the holes in his hand and see the hole in his side. And what is his reaction to all that? My Lord and my God. Now that's, that's important. That's critical. Because what is he saying, right? He is saying here, when he says, Jesus, my God, he's saying, you're God. You might say, well, yeah, didn't Thomas already think that? And Well, maybe he did in a way. We know that they believed that Jesus was the Messiah of God, the, the Son of God. They, we know they believed that. But this is a time where he's confessing outright, my God, I now own it and believe it. And one of the things that strikes me about that is different is, why does he say this now and not when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? Because there was a dead guy in the tomb and Jesus called him out and he came forth, but Thomas doesn't go, my God, you are my God. No, he doesn't do that. Why not? Well, he knows Jesus has power, but you know what? Elijah raised people from the dead in the Old Testament. The prophet Elijah did. So other prophets, other great people whom God works through have raised people from the dead. Is Jesus just another great prophet? And what Thomas is saying here is no. And the reason we know that is because who's the prophet that comes to raise Jesus from the dead? There isn't. There isn't a prophet that comes to raise Jesus from the dead. Jesus is the one who says, I will die and I will be raised from the dead. He calls his shot and raises himself from the dead, that God raises him from the dead. It's proof that he is God. God didn't work through anybody else to do it. Jesus walks out of the tomb. And so Thomas says, you really are alive my Lord and my God. This is true. But one of the ways I want to try to inspire your faith today is for you to know that eyewitnesses should inspire your faith. And we can put that phrase up there too. Eyewitnesses should inspire faith. Now, why do I say this to you? Because in verse 29, Jesus does not simply tell us to believe the evidence Notice what he says. Because you have seen me, you have believed. This is saying to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
What is Jesus doing? He does not mean to believe him without evidence, with a blind faith. He is saying, believe the eyewitnesses, those who have not seen me and yet believe. How are they believing? They're believing the eyewitness testimony. They're believing. Jesus is saying, those who come after you, my disciples, those who come after you, Thomas, and won't be able to see me, blessed are they, because they're not going to have the in-person standing in front of you evidence. They're going to believe your testimony when you failed to believe the testimony of your friends. And Jesus meets him in that point and inspires faith in others, in us. Peter does this too. When he, years later, when he writes one of his letters, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16, I want you to notice what Peter says because of how important this eyewitness testimony is. He says, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside. He knows he's nearing the end of his life as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You see what they're doing? Jesus' disciples have written down the words in the New Testament, in the Bible, so that those who come after and didn't live in the day and time of Jesus and don't have video proof can say, I witness the psalm. There's evidence to believe. You and I, though, we want proof, don't we? We always need proof. It's why we're on these all the time. We like to see the videos. Did you see what happened to that guy? No, show me. Right, I need to see. Or what about my vacation? Yeah, I got to post pictures so you can see it to believe it. Right? We're in it. We need to see and believe society, especially today in a video age. But before cameras, written testimony was the proof. And in a day and age when there weren't cameras, you have the best proof available. Eyewitnesses, disciples, the women who see Jesus. Paul tells us he appears to over 500 other people. This is no mere hallucination. Lots of people saw the risen Jesus. Jordan Mung was a lifelong atheist and political science major at Harvard who had a reputation for dismantling poorly constructed arguments in the defense of religion. But over time, she changed. She began to consider thoughtful responses from Christian friends that pressed her to begin doubting her own disbelief. And increasingly, the way of Jesus made more sense to her. She writes this, This theme of love as sacrifice for true good struck me. The cross no longer seemed a grotesque symbol of divine sadism, but a remarkable act of love. And Christianity began to look less strangely mythical and more cosmically beautiful. At the same time, I had begun to read through the Bible and was confronted by my sin. I was painfully arrogant and prone to fits of rage. I was unforgiving and unwaveringly selfish. I passed sexual boundaries that I promised I would never do. The fact that I had failed to adhere to my own ethical standards filled me with deep regret. Yet I could do nothing to right these wrongs. The cross no longer looked merely like a symbol of love, but like the answer to an incurable need. But beauty and need are not sufficient. So I plunged headlong into apologetics, devouring debates and books from many perspectives. I had argued with my peers before, but I'd never investigated the works of the masters, Augustine 
Anselm, Aquinas, Descartes, Kant, Pascal, Lewis. When I finally did, the only reasonable course of action was to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus. I committed my life to Christ by being baptized on Easter Sunday, 2009. Listen to this last part. When confronted with the overwhelming body of evidence I encountered, when facing down the living God, it was the only rational course of action. I came to Harvard seeking veritas, the truth. He found me. There is rational evidence to believe. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? And if not, it's your duty to investigate it, to figure out why or why not. Disprove it. Explain the empty tomb. Explain the eyewitnesses. Explain why people then would be willing to go ahead and die for something they know is a lie if it's not true. One day, we all have to stand before God and give an account of our life. And we have to stand before God and give that account. The question won't be, did you do enough to get into my kingdom? That's what we all think it's going to be. The question will be, did you believe? It's what Jesus does to Thomas. Stop disbelieving and believe. Believe. But discovering that Christianity is intellectually rational is not enough. Christianity is not merely intellectual, it is relational. Christianity is not just about an ethic or an ideology or a set of rules or a set of laws or lists. No, it's primarily about a person. And his name is Jesus. Like Jordan said in that quote, the truth will find you. A person, Jesus, who came to love and forgive people and to establish them as a, a powerful community, a force for him to display the love of Jesus. That's what it is. So, so yes, one of the ways that you and I might demonstrate faithlessness is in refusing to believe available evidence. But the second point that I want you to get today is that you could be faithless because you retreat from the church. That is from the community of believers, those who believe. We often focus on evidence. And we could have looked at a lot more evidence for the resurrection, but we don't have time to do that today. We often focus on that because it's important. And when we do, we miss something critical about the story of Thomas. In fact, it's as critical as the evidence, especially the way the story is told. We miss the fact that Thomas was faithful, faithless by failing to be with the other disciples. When the disciples congregate, Thomas separates and leaves. We see this in verse 24. Put that on the screen for us, if you will. So leave this up here. In verse 19, it tells us that on the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose, that same day, the disciples gathered that night. And verse 24 comes around and says, now Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. In other words, when they had all gathered in that familiar place, that upper room where they had celebrated the Last Supper with Jesus, Thomas doesn't show up. When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, Thomas, maybe he doesn't care to remember. He doesn't show. When you withdraw from the regular fellowship of the church that Jesus has established, seeds of disbelief will grow. 
when you participate in church infrequently, only when you need maybe a pick-me-up or a, a, a fresh dose of hope, then you are using the church. It strikes me that the way we often use the word user is referring to somebody who needs to go to their drug dealer to get a hit. And I wonder if we attend infrequently. Now, the good thing for me is it's my job. I got to be here. <laughs> but if we attend, inf- attend church infrequently, are we like users? Just saying, I need a little hit here or there. But otherwise, I'm good on my own. I don't need Jesus that much. But I do need a little hit. And it strikes me that that might be similar to the crowds that followed Jesus. Right? Everywhere went crowds following him. Why? They wanted to see another miracle. And in those same crowds that wanted to see those miracles, that needed that other hit, what did they do when it came down to the wire? Uh, Crucify him! Crucify him! They turn. Now, that's disbelief. I hope that's not our kind of disbelief. But if we're going to be honest, we've got to ask that question. Are we like the crowds? Are we like Thomas walking away from the church? And how is that going to lead and shape disbelief? But there is hope. There is hope. After all, it's Easter, right? Gathering with the church should encourage and inspire faith. Because Jesus wants your life to be plugged into the life-giving community of his church. This is what he wants. He, he came, he gathered a group of people following him, the church. The, the word church in, in the gospel is, is ecclesia, and it means the called out ones. Those who have been called out to follow Jesus, come follow me. And so everybody who says, okay, I'm a follower of Jesus, joins together, that's what we call the church. It's not a building. It's not just this place or that place. It's the followers of Jesus. And what Jesus is telling us is that the church is important, that he started it and said, you guys must continue to love one another because if you love one another, then all men will know you are my disciples. It's the ongoing influence after Jesus dies, is resurrected, and ascends into heaven. And so one of the things that we as church members, as followers of Jesus, need to understand is that we should love others by pursuing them when they have separated, when they have stepped away when they haven't been around, when they've grown distant. Because that's what happens here, right? If Thomas wasn't there the first night when they're gathered, how does Thomas find out that Jesus showed up? Did he read about it in the newspaper? Did somebody send him a text message? We know he found out because it says the disciples told him They know Thomas isn't here, but he needs to know what we know. He needs the hope that we have. And they go find him and tell him. They go pursue him to say, Thomas, you've got to know what happened. And they welcome him back. They don't say, Thomas, you know, first we think you should do this, this, and this. Make sure you prove that you're good enough. They just say, come on, come back. They 
welcome him with arms wide open, loving. The other thing about this then is, is it, Jesus is, is, is instituted the church to encourage and inspire faith, then yes, we should do that. But, but if you're the one that's grown distant, make every effort to come back too. Make every effort to come back. That's what Thomas does. You say, yeah, but Thomas got to see Jesus. But Thomas didn't know that. He didn't know that he would see Jesus. He decided to come back anyways. Because the next week, it tells us, a week later, when they're gathered again in that same place, Thomas is there. He's with them. Why does he do that? Because he knows he needs them. He needs his brothers and sisters. He needs those who are the followers of Jesus. And he comes back. And Jesus does show up. Jesus shows up. Jesus instituted his church to be a place where he shows up. Those early disciples, they gathered weekly on that first day of the week, the resurrection Sunday, right? And gathered on the first day of the week every week thereafter, just like we do. And we gather weekly. We gather weekly when I don't feel like it. And yeah, there's times where I don't feel like it. Maybe more often than you want to know. But there's something about the beauty of the regular habit of being together with God's people, the church, and expecting to encounter the living Jesus. Because he shows up. He shows up in the child singing loudly next to me. In the dudes like me who sing but can't carry a tune. In the uplifting music of the people who can sing. In the encouragement from the person who welcomes you with a smile and says, we're so glad you're here. He shows up on the faces of the people we see in the gospel stories we hear, what he's been doing in Malawi and how our elder Kazpiri went there and, and was able to help and share the gospel there and the way the church and the kingdom is growing there. The church, God's people, is growing and on the move around the world. And you're part of it by being here because you're connected to Kaz, sending him over there. We see it, Jesus meets us in the sacraments of the Lord's Supper we had on Good Friday. Baptism. In the preaching of the word, in the work of the spirit to convict you of your sin, but then to bring you comfort by his amazing grace. The spirit is working. We've seen high school students recently who have come to faith and been baptized. I know of some adults too who are coming to faith. Right? In the community of the church because they see the work of Jesus happening in their life and here. It's important. Believing is important. Believing evidence and being part of community. If you put that next slide up, I want to make this point too, that these two things we must have together, they go hand in hand, right? If on the one hand, you could say believing the evidence without community becomes a little more than empirical rationalism. Okay, I've studied the evidence. I've given it a look over. I see it probably true. It's rational. Okay. But believing community, being part of a believing community without evidence can simply become an echo chamber of groupthink, right? We see this happens all the time on social media circles. What Jesus is saying is you need both. You need the evidence that I am the truth and the life. You also need to be part of the group, the church that shows you the way of my life. 
both of those things have to go together as followers of Jesus. Jesus gives you evidence and truth in the pages of the Bible. If you simply gather to reinforce your own belief structures without letting the Bible challenge you, all you're doing is creating an echo chamber of groupthink. If you're willing to deconstruct this and go, I like this part but not that part, all you're doing is creating a community, an echo chamber of what you want to have. As followers of Jesus, we get shaped by who he is, what he's told us, and how we follow him. That's the whole point of the end. Verse 30 and 31. Because what does verse 30 and 31 say? Let's put those on the screen. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written. The book. People of the book. What's written? What's the testimony that we have? These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is what John is saying. This is the good news of Easter that Thomas discovered. Yes, there's evidence. There's reason to believe. And yes, I need the church. I need the people of Jesus. Where does that leave us? Is there hope for you? Is there hope for us, for me? Absolutely. It's Easter. Jesus rose from the dead. Unless you got somebody else that fits that standard that you can follow, there's hope here. Because there's nobody else I know of that's done that. Nobody else can call their shot, say, kill me and I'll rise again in three days, and then deliver on it. And there's hope not only because of the fact that that's what he did, but because of the tenderness and the kindness with which Jesus responds. Notice this. When Thomas refuses to believe, what does Jesus do? He shows up again. He gives him grace. He shows him his wounds. Okay, I know you didn't believe. I'm here again. Believe this time. And Thomas believes. Thomas is all in again. He takes the gospel to the nations through Iraq, Iran, and India where he's killed for talking about some guy who rose from the dead. How are you disbelieving? Or how are you believing? Do you need evidence? Good, search for it. Ask Jesus to give you some, some faith or to restore your faith. Do you need a community of faith? Church, yes, you do. I hope you find a life, hope, faith, and joy in the people of Jesus. It's where we come to maybe die not like Thomas did. Hopefully, we don't have to die like Thomas did. But it is where we come to die, where we come to die to ourselves and to find new life in Jesus and walk in his ways. And we're not a perfect people. Man, we are a messed up bunch. I know you guys. Like, you just have to trust me on this as the eyewitness. We're messed up people. I am too. We're broken. We are not perfect people. And we don't have all the answers. But we are being formed and reformed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. By his kindness, his mercy, his grace, his justice, his righteousness, his peace, his way of life. I have been amazed at the way the church responds when it has done wrong. It's willing to admit it, to own it, to repent, and to say, I'm sorry. And I'm also amazed at the way the church responds when the church has been wronged. You've heard the stories from the Covenant School in Nashville over the last couple of weeks in the shooting there. I read this Facebook post this week 
about the celebration of life service for the headmaster of the school, Catherine Kuntz. And it strikes me about how the church is a place that forgives and shows remarkable love to others. Here's what the post says. Today I attended the celebration of life service for my friend Catherine Kuntz. Personal social media postings, not my way, but I've told many people in the last week about Catherine. And the one thing I have said repeatedly is that I can think of no better, no one better to, quote, lead with love in the face of horrible loss than Catherine's husband, Dick Kuntz. Here's an excerpt from Dick's eulogy of his wife, Catherine, today. He says, Catherine would be embarrassed if our admiration of her distracted us from other wounded households. She was a champion for others and among the first to recognize when someone is isolated and lacking support, like Thomas. Burdened by shame, therefore honoring Catherine, he says, compels us to remember a seventh family. Equally wounded in the loss of someone dear to them, we count on the Lord and our community to support them generously, extravagantly, and to offer them hope that sustains. We are trusting in the strong and loving embrace of a strong and loving God to take each of the seven that died and heal their wounds and their souls. Christians can say that because they know there is a life after death. It's given freely to those who are sinners by a risen Savior who carries scars in his hands and feet. This is the testimony of Jesus. There's evidence in his resurrection and there's evidence in the work of his church today. You may have many doubts and disbeliefs, but put your faith in Jesus. He is the hope. Father, I pray that you will help us all to stop doubting and to believe and to trust in you, that we might find faith in you, hope in you, and believe in you. We pray that you will meet us in various ways to encourage us, to give us faith, to help us not disbelieve, but to believe. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.